Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to this conversation with Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College and Bronwyn Maddox. Before we kick off, which we're just about to do, some very brief housekeeping arrangements, the usual ones. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events, this time using the hashtag IFG Corona. Please do follow and tweet along. Please do send in your questions for Neil as early as you like. That can be now. If you give your name and where you're writing or tweeting from, um, that would be great to see. We always like to know, and it is relevant to the context often. You can post your questions in the panel on the right of your screen, and we're going to have a video and audio recording up within 24 hours. And so with that, Neil Ferguson is hardly going to be a stranger to you after the past year in which he seemed to be constantly on our screens. But to do his achievements rather more justice than that, he is the head of the Department of Infectious Disease Epidemiology in the School of Public Health at Imperial, where he leads research units which model infectious disease. And he's focused for a lot of his career on new pathogens. He's advised governments on diseases including foot and mouth, SARS, swine flu, and Ebola, some of which we'll come on to talk about. He emerged as a really early voice, unsurprisingly, in the UK when everyone was discussing what do we do about the pandemic. He was a member of SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies in the early months. And he's headed up, just where we most frequently hear from him now, the Imperial College COVID-19 response team. And they have been modelling the disease and how it might be contained by the UK and the world. I should say he's speaking in a personal capacity today. Neil, very warm welcome. Thank you, Brian. Let's start with where we are right now. Sun's shining, lots of people back to school, um, lots of kids back to school, lots of people back in their offices today. Afghanistan has blown coronavirus off the, the headlines for the past few weeks. So is now rows in Parliament over social care and all that. Are we back to normal? Not quite. I think we're on the road there. I think, in turn, I think we may see a difficult few weeks. Um, exactly how long that will go on for is, is unclear, but maybe Scotland gives us some indication. They reopened schools two weeks earlier than us and have seen case numbers slightly more than double there uh, since they did. It's a hint of a plateau now, which may be good news, but um, so I think most people, most epidemiologists, scientists, advising governments at the moment are, are expecting to see case numbers tick up. A really difficult thing to predict is say when when will a peak be reached, and that is because there's a lot of uncertainty around the details of quite the level of immunity in the population, given Delta and given vaccine efficacy slightly compromised by Delta. Given also just people's behaviour, how much will contact rates go up mm. you know, associated with the new term? Because you know, last, this last month, we were still at only 60% of normal contact rates in the population, actually less than the previous year's August with Eat Out to Help Out. So that certainly probably kept transmission down. So there's a lot of uncertainty going forward. You've touched already on quite a few of the things I want to talk about, um, which is the sheer difficulty of modelling some of these things, including people's behaviour. And you said that you were surprised by how cases actually fell in July. Can, can you just take us into that a bit? What, what was it that surprised you? 
So I should say at the outset that it's a much harder job predicting the epidemic now than earlier, just because of the level of immunity in the population. And I mean, vaccines are highly effective. But what we saw back in late June, early July was a uptick in contact rates in the population. And that, as we expected, led to a rapidly increasing uh, number of cases. And then you're completely right. We saw, and I don't think anybody was expecting it, a sudden decline from about July 15th onwards. And the kind of forensic analysis since then would suggest that actually the uptick was very much associated, we can't be completely sure, but looking at both the age distribution and the gender distribution, that uptick in contact rates was very much associated with the Euros football tournament. And that when Britain or England unfortunately got knocked out, um, contact rates dropped down again. Um, and since then have been ticking up slowly over the summer holiday period, um, but only slowly. The other thing which maybe had contributed to that drop, at least, was um, the you know, school holidays, basically, and then contact. Well, rates. I was going to come right, right on to this because everyone wants to know what the impact of schools might be. And you said that Scotland is a particularly useful example, or it could be, because they went back and they sent their kids back a couple of weeks earlier. So what is it you're going to be looking for, you know, over the next couple of weeks as the, these, the, 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 you know, we start to get figures on the impact of schools? Yes, well, first of all, I should say that the, the role of schools in, in COVID transmission is still a somewhat controversial, and it's certainly true throughout this pandemic, that probably children, young children, had not been key drivers of transmission. But clearly when schools go back, there's a lot of contacts both within schools and in the environment of schools and households mingling. So overall population contacts rates go up. So we'll be monitoring that through behavioural surveys. But most importantly, we'll be monitoring all the standard metrics, both case numbers, which are still important, though a little less so than in the past, infection prevalence levels from things like the ONS um, infection survey, but most critically, because it's the most important, what happens to hospitalizations and mortality. Bearing in mind those are lagged indicators, we probably won't see significant changes to those for at least a couple of weeks. It'll be case numbers which react fastest. And are you still feeling at this point, despite Delta um, and all these uncertainties you've described, that the link that was there in the beginning between infection and, and, and mortality and hospitalization, that that has been much weakened, that many fewer people are getting really seriously ill or dying compared to the beginning? And that's 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 holding good is the point I'm making. Yes, I mean, it's the link link is in some sense still there but the the ratio has been reset drastically so that people are protected against if you've had two doses of vaccines even with delta and even if it was several months ago i mean you're at least eight between 80 and 90% protected against being hospitalized protection against against death is probably even higher um, but there is some uncertainty i deliberately gave a range there Delta has compromised vaccine effectiveness slightly, uh, and it's difficult to quantify precisely how much. But also we're getting increasing data coming through now that vaccine effectiveness wanes over time, even without Delta. Um, and we always expected that to be the case, but the data's firming up. And so all of those things just leave, doesn't mean the vaccines are not 
haven't dramatically reset the relationship between infections and um, hospitalizations and deaths, but it, it does lead to that additional uncertainty. How worried should we be then about new variants? I mean, you, you've been um, yeah, cautiously hopeful there that, that, it's, uh, that, that it is all holding good. Um, could new variants bust through that? Well, first of all, I'd say uh, I'm hopeful, but I think at the moment there's a lot of uncertainty around what we'll see, even without another variant coming along. I mean, it could be that we see two or three weeks of growth of cases and then it plateaus and starts to decline. The challenge is it could be more like six or eight weeks, in which case numbers of hospitalizations per day could go up to still levels which really significantly stress the NHS. And we just can't predict that at the moment. Clearly, longer term, we are concerned about the potential for the virus to continue to evolve. And it has shown a remarkable ability to both become more transmissible and to some extent start to evade immunity. It's an impossible thing to predict, though. The best thing we can do is monitor, as we are doing probably better than any other country in this country, monitor the virus genetically, genomically, look for changes and evaluate those as quickly as we can. So where are you on booster shots, booster vaccines this uh, this autumn, which is, is, you know, is rumbling around there as a matter of debate? I mean, I think I definitely support JCVI's recommendation that people who are particularly extremely clinically vulnerable, particularly immunocompromised individuals, get the opportunity so they, to have they, they, might, they, might, they might have cancer, they might be having some other treatment. And this is the Joint Committee on, on Vaccines and Immunisation. Yes, sorry, I'm using acronyms. JCVI is almost a the whole, the whole subject is full of acronyms. But anyway, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to maintain that JCVI is not yet one of those uh, universal ones. Um, but the committee responsible has recommended them for extremely vulnerable people. And I think that's sensible because we know that vaccine-induced immunity is not quite as great in those individuals to start with. Then there is a much bigger debate about do you roll out booster shots to the whole population, really starting from the oldest who got their vaccine earliest to younger individuals. And there the data is less clear-cut. We do have increasingly good immunological data to suggest that a booster shot would be highly effective at boosting immunity, even against Delta, to levels of antibodies even in excess of what you get after two doses. So that is becoming clearer, regardless of almost what vaccine you use for the booster. What's the more difficult thing to weigh up is the societal, overall societal and health benefit from rolling out booster shots versus the cost, versus the, the fact that, frankly, in low-income countries, only 2% of people have had vaccines to start with. And so what we're seeing around the world is different, frankly, high-income countries moving at slightly different paces in terms of recommending booster shots. I want to come on to those questions of global politics in, in a moment, but I just want to stick with this, this, um, this question of vaccination here. And what we do? I mean, where are you on uh, vaccinating children, for example? I mean, it's a similar challenge. I mean, I think JCBI, the committee responsible, I understand their rationale. They've been relatively conservative in saying there are small risks from particularly the mRNA vaccines um, due to causing myocarditis. Um, we actually don't have quite as good a data on, on estimating what the risk of infection is 
causing the same condition, and it probably does cause the same condition. And so they said there is likely to be a small benefit from vaccinating that age group to that age group, to the vaccine recipients themselves. But it's not clear cut enough and large enough for them to wholeheartedly recommend it. There were, of course, wider societal... And and the, and, and the, 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 yes, and the government then jumped in and said, well, look, we do think, uh, having drawing on the device... It, that it is a finely balanced argument, and I think there were arguments on both sides, both within the committee, and it's a, something being debated a lot um, more broadly in society. I think there are also population benefits, though, to vaccinating that age group. So long as you're convinced that there is some individual level benefit, then I think it's valid to pull in the population level benefits. And and those would be that the vaccinating that age group would drive down transmission in the population as a whole. It would protect the more vulnerable. And so on balance, I think we will eventually move to vaccinating um, certainly probably 12 to 12 to 15 year olds. The question and the balance becomes even finer going to younger age groups, but focusing on basically the teenage, secondary school age um, children, I think we will move in that direction. But I don't want to kind of, you know, say I would have, I was not sitting on the committee. I'm aware of most of the data, but I was not sitting on the committee. And so I don't want to double guess JCVI's recommendation. But it wouldn't surprise me that the chief medical officers taking into account these other factors um, decide to go go forward with uh, vaccination. You, you've put the principle very precisely, though, that you know that you need to look for some benefit to that individual being vaccinated to compensate for the, the you know the, the small risk to that individual, and then you know before you can access these wider social ones. But I, I'm wondering whether you think the committee is getting the balance right, um, because the, you know the prime minister has been clear is looking at those social benefits societal benefits of, of tamping down the infection rate is, is, is keener than the committee uh, at this point. How do you think that, you know, that balance should be struck? I think th- there's multiple factors involved. And I think also def- depending on the committee and its constitution and the d- discussions which go in, having been on these sort of committees, they can end up being more conservative or less conservative in terms of how they interpret the data. I think the committee had some particular concerns about long-term follow-up data in terms of myocarditis associated with vaccination, um, and so took quite a conservative position, almost akin to a kind of medical regulator, which isn't quite its role, but um, um, in some sense the MHRA, which is the Medicines Regulatory Agency in the UK, has licensed these vaccines for emergency use in in children over 12. And so they, in some sense, made a judgment that the the risks posed by the vaccines don't preclude their use in that age group. So it is a very complex judgment. Um, As I say, I think the biggest, you'll remember a few months ago, there was a concern around blood clots, rare blood clots caused by the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is the reason why we have we now no longer use that vaccine in people under the age of 40, and, and they all get the mRNA vaccine. Except the later data came through and demonstrated reasonably convincingly that actually the, 
that you had a higher risk of getting those blood clots if you were infected with COVID and weren't vaccinated than from the vaccine itself. I suspect that is true also for this myocarditis risk. It's just we don't have the same quality of data on the, these rare effects of infection as we do for the vaccine. So it's an enormously diff difficult decision. So I'm not going to criticise JC Guy's um, comment, but as I said, I, I would not be surprised if, if the chief medical officers um, take a slightly different view. Uh, that's really interesting. You were mentioning Scotland before, and it's one of the very striking things about this pandemic that it's been managed very nationally, sometimes very regionally. I'm thinking of the US, I'm indeed thinking of the UK, uh, Australia, uh, Germany, where the local provinces or states or parts of the country have a lot of power to set at least some terms of how people um, are allowed to behave and, and, and what happens about vaccines and so on. Is that a strength or is it a weakness? I don't think you can generalise. I think in the cases of Australia, Germany, even the UK, it probably has been a strength. There has been a degree of coordination in all of those countries between the relevant regional provincial authorities which has worked and have been overall coordination in terms of scientific research and the advisory committees, things like that. But the local areas with the relevant responsibilities have made the final decisions. So I think in all of those, there have been tensions, clearly, um, this country and Germany and Australia. Mm. In all of those examples, though, I, mean, I think it has worked and it's given more local accountability for what's gone on. I think the US is a different um, example where, because of the unfortunate and pathological polarization of US politics, you have seen a very dysfunctional response um, with people, frankly, taking, I mean, political posturing on both sides, but particularly on, on, on the right in terms of refusing to take any heed of, of, for instance, CDC, US Centers of Disease Control recommendations. That's clearly a position we, I hope this country never reaches. Um, and I don't think it will. Um, so I... All right, well, that's, that's a pathology we, we examine in other debates, not, uh, yes, not yes, this, this, this particular discussion. While the, the US is showing, I guess, the vitality of a debate and federal system, it's not showing the coherence of what comes out of it, but we'll, we'll have to leave that. Okay, so the US, its own one. What about the global points you mentioned? Um, rich countries getting lots and lots and lots of vaccines, sitting there deciding whether or not they want to give booster shots, others having vaccinated maybe only a couple of percent. What, what happens about that? Yeah, so I think going back even a little further than that, it has been disappointing, understandable, but a little disappointing how nationally focused policy responses to this pandem pandemic have been. We just talked about within devolved administrations, the challenges of you know, coordinating responses within countries. But even in something like European Union, no two countries have adopted the same policies. There have, whilst there's been an enormous amount of sharing of scientific data, and the scientific community, I think, has responded admirably in terms of its openness, each country has been an island into itself. And in some sense, has, because of the single-minded focus on you know, dealing with their own local pandemic, to some extent, 
there has been less connection and interaction between countries than there would be in any normal circumstances or other types of crisis. And I think that's that's been a real shame. I think there could have been a more coordinated response, which would have been where countries learned from the best of what each other would do, was doing, which would have assisted the response even in high-income countries. I think the, the challenge has become even larger if one goes, you know, compares and contrasts high-income countries with low- and middle-income countries. I mean, the whole world locked down at the same time last year, in, in March of last year. High-income countries had, because of their higher global connectivity, had been seeded with infection much more heavily up to that point. So paradoxically, low- and middle-income countries locked down at an earlier stage of the pandemic. And that's why, for the first few months... An, an, an earlier stage it, within, their their, own their, their, within their own borders. So I'm thinking of maybe India there, maybe yeah. some of the African countries, and people exactly. saying, why, why hasn't the pandemic got there? And speculating exactly. that and it's because those, those early lockdowns yes. were effective. Yeah. Um, the challenge with that, though, is that the social net safety nets and economic safety nets that high-income countries could just about afford to put in place low- and middle-income countries were unable to put in place, certainly not for any extended period. And so those measures were unable to be sustained. I mean, some countries did try their very best to sustain them. And, of course, the only point of doing lockdown long-term is to buy yourself time to have vaccine. And that's why, in my mind, it's particularly tragic that whilst high-income countries have used lockdown as a measure of at least mitigating the impact of the pandemic of saving lives until they could vaccinate their populations. We're at such a low level of vaccine coverage, particularly in the low-income countries in sub-Saharan Africa, that they have had no... They've had to relax measures. They are seeing resurgent case numbers and deaths. We've seen that this year, but with no end in sight. I mean, they need to get up so much higher. So what is the consequence of this? I mean, can it so it's deal with um, the self-interest first of the richer countries? Uh, is well, it fair I to say? And then, you ask it how, how you like, but it seems to me there's two elements. There's the self-interest. Can any country beat the vaccine, uh, beat the virus within its own borders if the whole world still has it? And then you've got questions of, of equity, which, in fact, we were d- discussing just before we, um, we came live on us. Yes, and there's two different things. So, unfortunately, I think the idea that somehow we're not, none of us are safe until all of us are safe is not quite scientifically true. To some extent, the world cannot get back to normal in terms of global travel and everything else without high level of vaccine coverage probably everywhere. But this year has sort of demonstrated that high-income countries like ourselves, like much of Europe, like Israel can not completely get back to normal, but can, you know, reduce their mortality significantly, but protect their populations, open up their societies at a time where infection levels are surging in a lot of the world and causing a lot more mortality and, and healthcare pressure. And so that, that, we, that we do have two point. pandemics yes. right now, unfortunately. Yes. Um, and that does make this point even more acute that, OK, self-interest doesn't take them there. And so really this challenge to them is, look, what are you going to do about these other countries and the enormous inequity? Yes, and I think 
I mean, it is going to, first of all, I wouldn't criticise our government for prioritising its population. We, we elect our governments to protect ourselves, first of all. And so I think it does become slightly more of an issue when we talk about booster doses. But it is completely understandable why democratically elected governments will prioritise their, uh, their own population first. Um, I do think it has, though, shown up the fault, I mean, global fault lines between what's called the global north and the global south, more so than they even were before the pandemic in terms of, of that very nationalistic response seen across the world and vaccine supplies being largely taken up in the first year by high-income countries. I mean, there may be some positives out of that. And you hear those discussions now of, of, of low-income countries, for instance, sub-Saharan Africa, in taking more responsibility for having manufacturing capacity on their own borders and saying, no, we can't depend on, on fickle Western donors as much as we have in the past. And there's clearly also interesting changes in terms of which, I mean, development partnerships, let's say, and with China playing a much more dominant role now than it was even 10 years ago. And that's also been accelerated by the pandemic. So I think I, I'm an epidemiologist and not a politics professor, um, but even within my sphere, we're seeing impacts of that on how, for instance, research will be conducted in, in collaboration between collaborations involving both the global north and global south going forward. With frankly, understandably, partners from the South being considerably more assertive about this research has to meet our needs and build capacity in our countries for us to be willing to undertake it. Thanks for that. If you look back at the beginning of the pandemic, just to return to the UK, um, the long, really long 18 months ago, what should we make of it and the decisions that were taken then? And what should we learn from that? So I think there are a set of technical lessons to be learned, um, which in some sense are the easiest ones. And probably the principal one, as I've said before, is around being able to surge testing capacity for a new pathogen much, much more rapidly than we did. The reason, in some sense, we got caught out or responded too late beyond the politics of it and what was going on in number 10 and everything else, um, was around having only a very partial view of how far infection spread in the country. Mm. That we were testing travellers and we saw trickles of cases. And you'll remember then from about March, well, it actually was about March 13th onwards, we saw an enormous surge in case numbers. That surge had really been going on for weeks and weeks, and we just hadn't, it was because we started testing people in hospitals, we suddenly realised the extent of the problem. And, the, and just as Italy had before and France did at the same time, realised there was a lot more infection within our borders than we had hitherto um, been fully conscious. I mean, I have to say, we, we always suspected there might be, but clearly having, having surveillance in place is critical. I think... Beyond that, if you look across Europe as a whole, you see a, a, an enormous diversity in terms of how the pandemic has played out, with generally Southern European and Eastern European countries having suffered the, the highest per capita deaths 
um, whether measured through excess mortality. And then a few countries such as ourselves, such as Belgium in Northern Europe, also having unfortunately very high levels of deaths. But a few countries, I mean, like Germany, has 80% fewer, um, or rather we have 80% more deaths per experience 80% more deaths per capita than Germany. And I think that is an interesting comparison as to why that was. And I, I think partly it's around the engage, you know, successful engagement between the scientific community and leading policymakers in Germany. Um, partly around their ability to scale testing very early so that they had a much better handle on what was going on. And you know, small differences in the timing of that initial lockdown translated into very big differences in the number of deaths. And then partly, yes, the devolved and technical nature of the system, maintaining control in place, particularly in the autumn, where a lot of countries, frankly, faltered. I mean, across Europe, not just in the UK, countries were very reluctant to lock down again when they saw case numbers rise. Bear in mind that over two thirds of the deaths we've seen in this country in the pandemic were from October onwards of last year. Mm -hmm. um, That's a really stri striking figure. And, and, and of the first, the ones that were earlier than that, there was a big block of more than 20,000 that were in care homes. But as you said, the big, big bulk um, over that uh, winter and the early uh, and that was in, in some sense, that. That delay was nothing to do really with scientific advice. The scientific advice had already been established. Um, we knew that basically in, that, that if we didn't curtail transmission through social distancing measures, that we would see, I mean, overwhelming hospital capacity, I mean, case numbers which would overwhelm hospital capacity. That was what we eventually saw. But there was... In this country, I mean, that channel, we went through the tier system, a scaling up of local measures against different thresholds. And that slowed spread, to be clear, but it left us in a position where we basically had slowly escalating infection levels across the whole country, such that when Alpha came in in November, the new variant. Uh, what this is what was called the Kent variant at that time. What was time, called the Kent right? variant. We already had very high infection levels significant hospital demand and basically had to lock down very quickly after that point to, to, you know, frankly, save the NHS. And it was that long increasing case numbers, hospitalizations in autumn and the sudden acceleration before Christmas into mm. the third lockdown, which accounts for most of the deaths we've seen in this pandemic. All right. So that, 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 uh, um, that, that is a really important reminder uh, and a narration what happened, but what do you make of the the government's decisions over that? Uh, no, you're not. You're not a politician. Uh, you're not, a, not political a politician. And, I mean, I but you're not. You're not. A, you're not a diplomat either. So I, 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 I really like your view of, of the performance of the British government in this. So I mean, I think the, if you look at the out the the metrics, I mean, the UK is not the worst country in Europe in terms of what's happened in the pandemic, but it's certainly not the best. I think, unfortunately, rather than criticise, I think politicians across Europe were in difficult positions and were so in this country, um, particularly coming into the autumn, where something of the political consensus had fragmented, um, particularly within the Conservative Party. I mean, there was an, a vocal minority in that party and a vocal minority of the press. 
basically saying I'm being anti-lockdown uh, and questioning the science behind it. And that put us in a difficult position, put, frankly, the cabinet in a difficult position to make the decisions necessary. And there was a kind of false logic. I mean, it was completely false dichotomy. The idea that there was a trade-off between the economy and maintaining control of this epidemic. Because if you take the argument that, well, if we get to the stage where the NHS is overwhelmed, we are going to lock down, and that's what we have done every single time, then inevitably you're going to lock down at some time. So locking down earlier actually saves lives. You have mm. to lock down for less time, and the economic impact is less. But unfortunately, both mm. in this country and in many other countries, that lesson was not heeded. What about the roles of scientific advisers? You were quoting the FT recently saying that the government's chief scientific advisor and the, the chief medical officer were too constrained in what they can say and do. Really reading your quote. I needed greater independence from Whitehall. What would you like them to be free to do? So it's a difficult one. It's whether I think we still need those roles. And the chief medical officer, to be clear, is more than just an advisor. I mean, has statutory responsibilities, has to be within government. It's more the interface between the wider scientific community and through advisory groups like SAGE and a plethora of other committees. How does advice get filtered into the government? You know, what do ministers actually see? And those two roles at the moment straddle the divide. So it's, it may not be a matter of you know, redefining what those roles are, because in some sense, for those to be effective individuals, they need to gain the trust of politicians. They can't be loose cannons criticising the government. It may be more having independent chairs of those advisory committees who can speak more candidly than perhaps the CMOs and CSAs are. At the moment, SAGE is chaired by, well, this pandemic has been chaired by those two individuals. So it may be just that sort of change. And, and every other senior advisory committee we have had operating through this uh, pandemic, including JCVI, has had an independent chair. And that has meant there have been instances, as we were talking about with children and vaccination, where the committee can recommend something the government really doesn't particularly like and state the reasons for it. That's much harder with SAGE. Um, so mm -hmm. I think these things, there's no perfect answer to this. And I this will be one of the things which is you know, very significantly discussed in, in the public inquiry. Um, it would be interesting to look at other countries' examples, and there, there has been a wide variety of models of scientific advice across yes. this pandemic in, in different countries, from basically a few individuals directly advising the head of state to lighter weight advisory structures to everything in between. Mm -hmm. That's one thing our team has put out a very good report on, on the use of scientific advice and looking at how other countries did it. Um, I might, in a, in a moment, come back to questions about um, what your long experience, and I, I mentioned only a few other diseases that you, you looked at, what, the, what that's taught you about all this. But I want to start bringing in questions now because there are a lot of them. They're very, they're very good ones. So let's turn to this. All right, I'm going to pick up one first from someone who hasn't given their name, um, but it is a question very much on people's minds. And... This person says, I'm concerned about schools and my children catching COVID and long COVID is also troubling me. How safe are our schools and is it acceptable 
to allow them to be infected? So, so the COVID, I mean, the measures which have been in place up until this point to reduce COVID transmission in schools have have largely been removed in England. Though some of them, they've been more retained in in other um, nations within the UK. So undoubtedly, the risk of transmission is going to go up. As to whether it's acceptable, I mean, acceptable is a societal judgment. Um, and I don't think I have a simple answer for that question. Clearly, there are always trade-offs. We, in, in every aspect of our lives, we make decisions about risk. There is nothing we do which is risk-free. All I can say is the risks for children under the age of 18 um, from COVID infection, if they have no other health conditions, none of the predisposing conditions, the risk posed by COVID is very low. It's not zero, but it is very, very small, which is one of the reasons that the Joint Committee on Vaccines and Immunisation has had such difficulty weighing up the pluses and minuses of vaccination. So it's not, it's not a simple answer. Um, I think we need to monitor what's happening in the next few weeks in case numbers. And be, if we start seeing something closer to the worst case scenarios, case numbers exceeding 100,000 or more um, rapidly rising hospitalizations, there may well need to be some course correction um, at that point. It's not a complete answer. I don't, I don't really have a yes, no answer to that question. It's not there isn't one, but the Prime Minister has, has obviously made clear many parents, I suspect, will be with him of why it is so important now, after so much missed education, to try and keep the, the schools yeah. open and the, the, the children back there. Um, let me pick up one now from um, Jane Dunnage, um, who's saying, do you think that the information on COVID-19 would have been ha had better take up with the general public if it had been presented as public information rather than government policy? So it's interesting. I mean, I think in general, there have been some, a few exceptions, but in general, the communication of the science around COVID during this pandemic, at least in this country, has been very good in, in the media. There have been instances, though, where the science directly has an impact on policy of let's say, a degree of politicisation of the science and some media outlets doing what I would call this cherry-picking the science which agrees with their policy position. And certainly within social media, an enormous amount of politicisation of people being you know, pro or anti-lockdown. Admittedly, the anti-lockdown has always been a small minority, but a vocal uh, one. And I think um, that has had a probably bigger impact than a lot of people realised within the general public discourse. Um, whether it could have been avoided, I'm not sure. I think if we look at kind of things which predict being as an anti-vaxxer or COVID sceptic, certainly distrust of authority is one. Mm. But there's also a distrust of mainstream science, of experts generally, yeah. of mainstream science as well. So whether it, if, if the Royal Society or um, the you know, Academy, Academy of Medical Sciences, whatever had been the, the fount of all knowledge of on COVID, would it have really made a difference? I'm not so sure. And it's interesting. I mean, you've had the royal family, you've had others um, yeah, trying to um, show themselves having vaccines and so on. It hasn't 
um, dented that if, if people didn't want it to be um, convinced. And I would say, I think one thing, I mean, Chris Whitty and Patrick Villans have done very well is communicate mm. the science. Yes. Um, yes. Including being quite clear where they feel, I mean, in, in a fairly coded way, and they feel there's maybe a slight gap between, you know, that what the science is saying and what particular government decisions have been made. Okay, let me pick up, um, actually, a pair of questions at this point. So there's one um, uh, saying, why are Sweden's cases lower than other countries in Europe, even though they didn't lock down or mandate masks? And I want to take that together with one from Sue, who says, in both of our opinions, um, overall, which countries' leaders have made the best decisions since January 2020? Sweden, Sweden, <laughs> Sweden and the world. That. I mean, it has been noted that um, countries with female leaders have generally done better in this pandemic than with male leaders. Um, so, as I think I mentioned earlier, there is quite a range of, if we look at the overall per capita death toll from the pandemic thus far across Europe, it, span, it spans a kind of range of about fivefold. In terms of the variation from, um, are you talking about mortality there? Mortality, which is which is as good an indicator as any of how well countries have done. Uh, with countries in South Italy, countries in the east of Europe, um, some in the south, the UK, Belgium, being in the top ten, and then some countries are doing a lot better. Number of countries like Sweden in in the middle. Um, a lot of that has been down to how, when the countries, when relative to their own epidemics, the countries initially locked down or implemented what we call suppression measures, measures which would lead to transmission being brought under control by reducing contact rates in the population, which is what Sweden did. Um, when they introduced those measures relative to their epidemic, and that sort of set the scale of the first wave, mm. number of cases, number of deaths. And then what determined really the scale of the epidemic thereafter is how quickly policymakers responded to resurgences in case numbers. How high did they let infection levels get? And Sweden has always been fairly responsive to increases in case numbers. They've used a slightly different policy set of policies relying more on voluntary measures than mandatory measures, but they responded more quickly than the you know, England did to surging case numbers in the autumn of last year, um, as did a number of other countries across Europe, using a wide variety of measures. And no two countries in Europe have used exactly the same measures. Um, that has been one of the challenges scientifically of trying to understand what measures work best is that it's very hard to pinpoint, disentangle, given every country has used a unique suite of interventions. Mm. All right, but if you look at, for example, Australia, New Zealand, if they had... So they adopted a very different policy. Yeah, but if, they, um, if, 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 if you adopted that, which you might argue is absolutely impossible in Western Europe, just given how more connected those countries are, if you adopted that and had followed it with a very rapid vaccination... Would that be the, the the model that people, the country should aim at? So, first of all, I mean, for the UK to have adopted that policy, we would probably have to seal our borders in late 
mid to late January mm. of last year. Um, and that was not on the table politically. I mean, it was discussed a little bit at Sage, but um, it was not on the table politically at all in any European country. But because those countries were more isolated, particularly about Australia and New Zealand, it was a policy option they adopted and has been highly successful. It's come at significant cost economically and socially, but it was highly successful. The challenge those countries now face is getting vaccination levels up in their populations to a point where they can afford to reopen borders. Mm. Countries like Taiwan were, Taiwan experienced, there are a whole set of countries across Southeast Asia and that area where, who experienced SARS back in 2003-04 and had put in place measures first of all, much more responsive to the threats from coronavirus, but also put in place measures so they could scale up testing and had action plans in place for how they would deal with a recurrence with SARS, which they put into play, into effect, which is what Taiwan did. It had a post-SARS action plan, which did involve very strict border controls. Um, paradoxically, South Korea, which responded well early on, and learned a lot of lessons from having a very large MERS, another coronavirus MERS outbreak in Seoul a few years ago, which led them to completely rethink their disease surveillance and, and emergency response policies. Mm. So there are plenty of positive examples of countries which really have responded well. All of them are finding life more difficult this year with Delta. Mm. And I should say there are some middle-income countries there as well, such as Taiwan, uh, Thailand and Vietnam, which through much of last year, we're doing very well, but have found it much harder this year. Yeah. Um, no, these are fascinating questions tucked in there. And Sue, we could uh, we could um, pick up all kinds of these. I, I, I'm struck by um, the Australian-New Zealand example and whether, in a sense, those governments have squandered uh, the early advantage they got by that very dramatic lockdown or whether the sheer success of that actually meant it was very going to be very very hard to persuade people to take up vaccines at quite the same rate as, as places where people are very afraid um i'm not modeling people's behavior so, i mean i think it's Neil is, but Neil, you may have a just a view on that i mean so yes there has been they have struggled to get vaccine uptake to the levels we have seen if you only have a handful of deaths then there's much more scope to say why do we need to do this we haven't i mean it doesn't, mm. talking about the insularity none of the people we know have been affected by this um so it's been harder i think in the case of australia they were a little bit slow in ordering vaccines yeah. as well frankly and they're now trying to do swaps of the kind that they've just time swaps of the kind that they've just done with them uh, appear to have done with the UK. Well, uh, we could go on around the whole world, but let me take in some. Take, uh, let me take in some others. One that's come in um, anonymous, perhaps appropriately, saying, "How concerned are you that in England few people are wearing masks?" And for those of you who stepped onto the London Underground, uh, very few people on that, uh, even where, though it's supposed to be mandatory there. So masks. I mean, first of all, they're not a panacea, but they do reduce transmission. They reduce transmission from infected people more than protect you if you're uninfected. So it is understandable. I was on a train this morning. Um, actually, most people on that train were wearing masks. I have to say, I didn't don't think I really saw anybody not wearing a mask on the train. Thing may be different on the tube now. Um, but clearly, I, my personal view is 
it costs me nothing to wear a mask. It is my own convenience. If it gives other people greater reassurance, then it doesn't cost me anything. So, I mean, I would encourage people to do so, at least until we get past what is likely to be a surge in transmission out the other side. Eventually, we will get back to normal. When infection levels are much lower, there's no benefit to anyone to wearing masks, and we can. I would be happy to take them off again. Um, but right now, I think it doesn't cost anything, shows respect to your fellow people around you, and so I'm continuing to do so. Mm. Thank you for that. Pick up one now from Duncan. Um, and he, uh, he says, good afternoon, Professor Ferguson. How would you evaluate the contribution that the Bill and Melissa Gates Foundation has helped you, Imperial College, and the world during this pandemic? And it seems to be an interesting one. Um, in the, not just about the Gates Foundation, though that is uh, almost always interesting, but about what these very big fortunes can sometimes do to help the world's uh, crises. So the but Bill and Melinda this, Gates Foundation. Um, that one, they, that one, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, the, Melissa, yes, sorry, it says Melissa. Yeah, Melinda. Uh, uh, being being written mean, out too quickly of the, uh, the Gates picture. So the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has had a particular focus on supporting low- and middle-income countries in this pandemic. And, and we've benefited to some extent from some of that funding, but most of it has actually gone to those countries affected. Um, and, and they have also significantly supported international initiatives such as the COVAX initiative uh, for buying vaccine stocks for low and middle countries and funded, and funded expert networks to provide you know, real-time decision support, advice, surveillance capacity, those things in low-income countries. So I'm, I'm very supportive of what you know, the Gates Foundation has done, not just during this pandemic, but actually in building infrastructure and building capacity in the lowest, poorest countries of the world to cope, cope with global health and infectious disease challenges, which they've been doing for two decades. As for the role of those foundations, they don't operate in a vacuum. I mean, there is a, a complex set of actors in the global health arena, what's called global, global health is a slight euphemism for health focused on low and middle income countries generally. Um, but as well as the World Health Organization, which is the normative agency, which despite the criticisms has also done a very good job in providing information, cogent advice and support for many countries in the world. Um, that's been assisted by organizations such as the Gates Foundation, such as Gavi, such as the Global Fund. Um, which have all tried to assist countries who, who are frankly have far fewer resources than us to you know, make sensible policy decisions which are effective and support their populations, you know, support their healthcare systems. That said, I think that for the reasons I explained earlier, I think that I'm on a slightly not quite paternalistic, but there are elements of that that. Um, post-colonial relationship between um, high-income countries and particularly sub-Saharan Africa, which was changing anyhow. That rate of change will accelerate because of this pandemic, partly because of the issues in inequity I've highlighted earlier, but partly because it has focused minds in everybody involved in the global health arena of 
the necessity for every country to have some degree of technical capacity itself to respond in such cases. In a global pandemic, what, what, maybe I'll step back. In, in something like the West African Ebola outbreak, for instance, mm. because it's a localised thing, resource can be moved in from outside to support those countries who don't have the right. capacity to deal with that epidemic. In a global pandemic, every, every individual country's resources were stretched to breaking point. They had no more ability to provide assistance. And that means that each country needs to be self-sufficient, and we probably have not done a good enough job at building capacity, both infrastructure and technical capacity in many countries in the world, to allow them to do that job. Oh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, fascinating the panorama of how to, how to deal with these things. We pick up a pair of questions from Richard Braham, which have got a lot of likes. Um, and I think speak for a lot of what a lot of people are thinking at the moment. And the first one is, what are your views on vaccine passports? And the second one is, does it matter if the booster jab, if you're offered one, is different from your original jab? I'll take the easy one first, which is the second one, which is the technical answer. It probably doesn't matter. In fact, there may even be a benefit to having a different vaccine as your booster from the first one you had. Certainly, there has been quite a lot of work looking at the immunology of, of booster doses just in the recent months, as you might expect. Yeah. And it demonstrates that um, almost regardless of what vaccine you have for your booster, antibodies are boosted even higher levels than you get after the second dose. It may even be beneficial to mix them such that if you have Pfizer for your first two, having AstraZeneca for your third may give slightly higher antibodies Vice versa, also true. If you had AstraZeneca first two, having Pfizer or Moderna for your third may give the best outcome. I mean, the data is not completely clear cut as yet, but it's becoming stronger on that side. So I don't think there are any issues. There may be some regulatory issues around it because generally vaccines are licensed you know, to have the same have the same vaccine in a sequence of doses. As for the first question, vaccine passports, um, so I think they can be used in different ways. It's, it's kind of in a, in permissively or restrictively, let's say. Um, I think in the context of global travel, where countries have been you know, mostly concerned with their own populations and minimising risk, it's understandable that as a, they want to open up travel, but in a controlled way, and therefore it's understandable that they demand um, vaccination um, as a risk mitigation strategy. Not a perfect risk mitigation strategy, but it is yeah. reasonably effective. I think there's a different question within one's own borders, for instance, nightclubs, everything else. So undoubtedly restricting entry to those venues to people who've um, had only had two vaccine shots will, will reduce the risk of transmission in those venues. So it will have an effect if it's implemented. Where I have some questions is whether I think the, the evidence is very mixed as to whether though if, if the main goal of those measures is to encourage people to get vaccinated who otherwise wouldn't, whether that's an effective strategy. I think 
in some sense, coercion often hardens people's um, views. And if somebody is resistant to being vaccinated, these sort of measures may well not be very effective at increasing vaccine uptake. In the people more in the middle who haven't quite got round to it, it may well have an effect. As for the broader societal, ethical, political question of should we be, you know, coercing uh, people to have a particular medical treatment, I think that's a very difficult one. I think the, I would probably draw a distinction between NHS frontline healthcare workers and care workers, where I think the risks posed to vulnerable people in their care are such that I, I have some sympathy with requiring such people, you know, their carers to be vaccinated, compared with other measures, for instance, around nightclubs. I mean, I think you can also restrict, you, could, you can reduce risk in mass gatherings and nightclubs, for instance, with lateral flow tests, with other measures. But it, it, these things are subtle judgments and, and really not scientific judgments. They're really, I mean, political judgments. As many of them are. All right, we're getting really towards the end. Let me just squeeze in a pair of questions here. One from Bahan Al-Gilani, and that is, I'm going to, I'm going to consolidate it, um, whether the UK should be sharing its vaccines with countries with lower rates. And um, another one on why um, it's from uh, Paul Barrett, the rate of new variants seems to be slowing. Why? So Sorry, new, new variants, yeah, seems to be slowing. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not, new variants aren't really slowing, but um, the hurdle for any new mutation, new variant to come along to be even more transmissible than Delta is a higher hurdle for the virus to cross. It is becoming, this virus is becoming ever more adapted to the human population and in some sense ever more perfect at doing what it does, which is being transmitted from person to person. So it will necessarily probably be more difficult for the next variant to you know, achieve global dominance in the way Delta has. As for, I mean, I think now is the time for the UK to be generous in turn. We have ordered 400, 400 million doses of vaccine at the moment. We don't need 400 million doses of vaccine. And I think we can send a message by being generous in the coming months. I mean, from now on in terms of sharing vaccine supplies with the rest of the world. I think that has started, and it's, that wasn't intended to be a criticism, more of an encouragement that we can do more of what we're already doing. Okay, thanks. We actually have two minutes. Let me squeeze in a marvellously optimistic one from Hillary. And she says, do you think the UK general public and indeed ministers uh, are now much better at dealing with statistics, risk and uncertainty uh, than they were and appreciate their value. And um, she says, what, what does it say about mathematical education in the UK? I, I'm still taking this as an optimistic question, but you may not. Yes, I mean, I do think, I think everybody knows what the R number is. They probably hate it, but um, they know what the reproduction number is. If the country could got, pass a test on it, yeah. And have been used to tracking various, a large number of different metrics day by day to track this epidemic, comparing statistics between countries. I think it has been, it's, I, I mean, I, I suspect most ministers are sick to death of epidemiologists, um, but 
it has been good for the discipline and has been good for statistics overall in terms of, I think, demonstrating real-world value of, of these sort of quantitative disciplines. And frankly, we need more people with statistical mathematical training in this country to be globally competitive. Um, we need more people with that sort of background, I would hesitate to say, within government as well. Um, and that is something also which has picked up in the last year. But So I, I see those things as positives, even if people probably heartily sick of epidemiology specifically by now. Thank you for that. We're going to have to draw it to a close. There's lots of terrific uh, questions, and I'm so sorry I couldn't get them all in. Uh, Mary, uh, Simon, Dennis, Mick Fincham, um, S. McDonald, um, uh, really a lot of uh, great questions there. Uh, one from the Imperial College Library about open source data. I think you may have to take that at, at, at home. Um, great questions. Thank you all very, very much for joining us and if we were all in the room together i would say can you now join me in thanking neil ferguson we're very glad to with him. thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of ifg live please do subscribe to hear more and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk events thank you